0: Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Hitman Chronicles This is your host, the original great Rob Silver And we have another huge and packed episode today We're going to talk about the fights that occurred Thursday night And that will occur soon I'm recording some sessions before I go to the theater The Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden tonight To see Oshaki Forster. Fight Abraham Nova for Shaki Forster's Criminal Cartel Alphabet Soup Junior Lightweight Championship. I will talk about Jojo Diaz's fight from last night. I have another packed Ask Rob Silver Q&A session. And today we will take a look at my 16th greatest fight in boxing history. (laughs) Which is... (laughs) Which is which will be segued into by a question by my boy Kobe about greatest fights between two knockout artists, and that'll be the December third, nineteen eighty 1980 fight, nineteen eighty two fight between Wilfredo Gomez and Lupe Pintor. So let's get on to uh, last night. Golden Boy held a card in California, and Jojo Diaz at. Super lightweight fought Jesus Ricky Perez, and Jesus Ricky Perez four years ago, three and a half years ago, had ballooned to two hundred pounds, which was way too big for his uh, height. He's not that tall of a guy. He's five five, five six at the most. He lost the he lost the weight. He's ripped now. And last night he put on the performance of a lifetime in Out Hustling. Out punching, he might not have landed more punches than uh Jojo Diaz, but he threw uh, he threw damn near twice as many punches as Jojo Diaz and deserved the split decision win that he got over Jojo Diaz last night. I had to fight six rounds to four for uh Jesus Ricky Perez, and I had a 96 93. He totally out hustled. Jojo Diaz, in the fifth round, for some inexplicable reason, Jojo threw Jesus Ricky Paris through the ropes, shoved him through the ropes. Kudos, kudos to the referee last night. The referee did a hell of a job last night in keeping order, because that fight could have gotten ugly right after that. It could have gotten real ugly. Referee stepped in, and the referee deducted, immediately deducted a point from JoJo Diaz and told him if he tried anything like that again. He is getting disqualified. So, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) referee Thomas Taylor, depending on what happens tonight at the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden, I might give him... Uh, the Hitman Chronicles award for the best matter of fact, he can't be the fighter of the week because he's a referee, but um, a special commendation to Thomas Taylor for sh- for refereeing a fight that was becoming dirty and taking control, and right away he stopped the nonsense from continuing. Other than that throw later on in the fight, JoJo Diaz uh hit uh. Ricky uh, Jesus, Ricky Perez with his shoulder and then Taylor stepped in right and said, nah, but stop that. And JoJo Diaz tried to say, oh, I didn't do anything to the shoulder. Thomas Taylor refereed a hell of a fight. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to see Thomas Taylor referee big fights now. He's proven to me last night that he needs to uh, referee some of these huge fights coming up Whether it's a Tank Davis Maybe he should referee the Devin Haney versus Ryan Garcia fight That was just signed He needs to work more fights Because every time I see Thomas Taylor referee He does a hell of a job And last night he was phenomenal Whenever uh, Perez was stray low Because Perez landed a lot of big body punches Taylor was like that That wasn't a belt line But you gotta be careful He did a hell of a job Hell of a job, and Jesus Ricky Perez did a hell of a job in out-hustling JoJo Diaz. JoJo Diaz needs to seriously consider retirement. He has lost four of his last five fights, ladies and gentlemen. And at one point in time, he was 32 win. His record was 32 wins, one one defeat, and one draw. Well, now... Since he's lost four of his last fights. He's 33 wins, five losses, and one draw. At 31, he'll be 32 in November. JoJo needs to consider retirement. He was never a big puncher. He was a volume puncher. But even last night, he, while he was much more accurate than Jesus uh, Ricky Perez, he wasn't as active. JoJo used to throw a lot of punches. JoJo might have thrown 50 punches around last night while... His opponent threw damn near 80 punches per round. Congratulations to Jesus Ricky Perez. Jojo Diaz, since beating Tevin Farmer, has declined in talent. And he seriously needs to consider retirement. He was never a big puncher. He's fighting much bigger guys at 140 pounds. They are going to batter him into submission. He should seriously consider getting into training or something maybe even announcing, I think, matter of fact, I think a few years ago, he did some color commentating, and he was pretty decent, oh, by the way, I watched the fight on YouTube earlier today, um, you, uh, Golden Boy has the fight on free on YouTube, for free on YouTube, with no announcing, I saw the entire 10-round fight, I didn't have to hear the shenanigans of a Chris Mannix, or a or, or, or Sergio Moron. Or Todd Maddox. For some reason. There was no announcing. You just heard the, the, the crowd. And the you heard referee Tom Taylor. The whole nine. But nothing else. It was glorious. That's what the zone should do. The zone should just go ahead. And fire all the announcers. And just show the fights. Without announcing. It's easy to score. And you don't have to be. Uh. Persuaded by whatever these clowns are talking about. All right. I'll be back to continue this podcast after I come home from watching the Oshaki Forster versus Abraham Nova card. I will give you my thoughts on the undercard fights and then I will talk about the main event. I'll be right back in a few hours. Oh, don't stop this podcast. When I come back, I'm going to, to, I'm going to the fight and then when I come back, you'll uh, hear what happened at the fights. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just got back from the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden 15 minutes ago. The card ended around 11:30 and um let's talk about the main three fights. First and foremost, the Hitman Chronicles fighter of the week is Bruce Shushu Carrington. Bruce Carrington, Shushu, reminds me of James Tony, The way he does his shoulder roll with his left arm, the way he throws that counter right cross, and how phenomenal he is defensively inside. He is a tremendous defensive fighter inside, in the trenches, a la a James Tony. The two best defensive fighters I ever saw fight inside were James Tony and Roberto Duran. Bruce Shushu Carrington has that type of defensive skill set. He reminds me of a young James Tony, and he did what he wanted to do tonight. He fought a picture-perfect fight. In dominating uh, Bernard Torres, he dominated Bernard Torres from the opening bell. Did whatever he wanted to do, and then in the fourth round, landed not what this. I'm glad I was at the theater in Master Square Garden, but a friend of me, tech, a friend of mine, my buddy Kobe, who later on in the podcast you hear me answer a question that he posted on the. On, uh, that he gave to me to to talk on the Ask Rob Silver Q&A session of the podcast. He texted me, told me that Joe Testator called the knockout punch a real right hook. What the fuck is he smoking? Joe Testator? you fucking idiot. Oh, and a shout out to my man Gritty. Gritty told, no, was it Gritty? Yeah, Gritty posted on Twitter that Mark Kriegel said, Sugar Ray Robinson is one of New York's greatest fighters. Mark Kriegel, you stupid motherfucker. Sugar Ray Robinson was born and raised in Detroit. Came to New York as a teenager. Yeah, he won the Golden Gloves. But he's not a native New Yorker. He came to New York to fight. But the man was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. You stupid motherfucker. And Joe Tessitore, that was a counter right cross. Not a real hook. What are you smoking? ESPN, I'm so glad I was at Madison Square Garden tonight. But I'm sick and tired of the the zone announcers and the ESPN announcers. We're talking fucking three stooges on both networks. The ESPN clowns of Joe T- Chester Taw, Mark Kriegel, and Tim Bradley, and the zone clowns of Chris Maddox, Todd Grisham, and Sergio Moron. I'm sick and tired of these guys. Uh, Destroying the airwaves. With misinformation. When I was a kid. I'm 55. I'll be 56 in May. I had great announcers. That knew the sport. Tim Ryan. Gil Clancy. Howard Cosell. Then later on. Jim Lampley. Alex Wallow, uh uh, Barry Tompkins. They knew the sport. And then in the 90s and 2000s, you had the great Roy Jones Jr., the greatest color commentator of all time. He knew the sport. What do we have today? We have buffoons who make shit up. Oh, when Tim Bradley was calling the, the right cross or the left cross from a softball position. Oh, he's waiting to hit him with a. Backhand shot, where you get this bullshit from? I am so glad I didn't have to hear these clowns announced tonight. Now I DVR'd the fight so I could record it on my DVD recorder to keep as part of my over 25,000 fight collection of tapes and DVDs. But just I don't. I'm not gonna listen to that. I'm never gonna watch the Nova versus uh, O'Shaki Foster fight again. I might watch the Bruce Character fight later on in the year when I'm looking at the knockouts of the year. And right now, Bruce Character's spectacular counter right cross. Not real left. Not real hook. You stupid motherfucking joke, Tessator. It was a counter right cross to put Bernard Torres to sleep in the fourth round by Bruce Shushu Carrington. Right now, he is the leading contender for the knockout of the year. Um, And he is the Hitman Chronicles fighter of the week. Then we had uh, Puerto Rican prospect uh, Brian Chevalier against Adrian Cortez and Adrian Cortez beat the hell out of Brian Chevalier. Brian Chevalier is a big stiff He took a brutal beating, and finally in the fourth round, the corner threw in the towel. It was a one-sided beating. Brian Chevalier is a human punching bag. Kudos to Adrian Cortez. He moves on. Hopefully, he can fight a contender next. And then, the main event. Oshaki Foster defending his WBC criminal cartel alphabet soup title at uh, Super Featherweight against Abraham Nova. And I give all credit in the world to Abraham Nova. He came to fight. He fought his ass off. And I gave him three of the first... I gave Foster the first round, and then I gave the next three rounds to Abraham Nova. He was out hustling Oshaki Foster and landing his right cross over and over again. Round five, Forster was winning the round when he hurt his arm, right arm, and I thought he might have hurt it to the point where he might not be able to use it, but he came back and won the sixth round. So after six rounds, I had it dead even. Then the fight was going back and forth. After 10 rounds, I had the fight dead even. Eleventh round was a great round as they went toe-to-toe, and I thought it was Shaki Forster. Came on strong towards the end of the 11th round to win the 11th round. And then in the twelfth round, O'Shaki clinches the win with a beautiful left hook that was aided by Abraham Nova slipping on the paint at the same time. But you know what? A punch landed. It's a knockdown. It. It's a knockdown. And I have to give the fight the round ten eight. And I gave the 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 the, the decision on my scorecard to Oshaki Forster 115-112 Where does uh both fighters go from here Um Abraham Nova is a tough fighter tough fighter he he's uh he's going to be a tough out for anybody but right now he's a gatekeeper I never see him I can never see him as a world champion And as far as uh, Oshaki Forster goes it's never an easy night for him when he wins. His last two fights have been tough, but he's pulled it out in the 12th round with knockdowns. The last fight was a was a 12th round knockout. This fight he won with a 12th round because he won by split decision. If he doesn't win that round, he could have lost the fight. So he came on strong, won the last two rounds on my scorecard to win it all. He won 116-111 on one scorecard. Another scorecard had him winning 115, 112, which was the same scorecard I had. And one judge had Nova winning 114, 113. It was a tough fight for both fighters. A lot of rounds could have gone either way. So uh, if Nova would have found a way to win the fight, I wouldn't have called it a robbery. But those last two rounds by Oshaki Foster, like I just mentioned, pulled it out on my scorecard and pulled it out to win. Via split decision because um, he had a 115, 112, the other scorecard. That means that judge gave a 10-8 round just like I did. If he loses that round, it, it's probably, yeah, it would have been a draw because, um yeah, it would have been a draw on my scorecard. It would have been a draw on that judge's scorecard, and the fight would have been a draw. So, a shocky forced the knockdown clinched the win, but he had lost that round, he would have still been guaranteed a draw to retain his uh, WBC Super Featherweight Championship. Now, what does the future hold for Shaki Foster? I said Abraham Nova now is the gatekeeper at 130 pounds. If you want to get a title shot against any of the world champions, you got to beat Abraham, Abraham Nova. Well, Foster should start looking at trying to unify with the other champions, like a Joe Cordina. So uh, we will see. I I hope that that Oshaki Forster uh, continues his rise. I mean, he's a very good fighter. He's a clutch fighter. He comes. He last two fights he showed his intestinal fortitude by coming off strong in the 11th and 12th rounds in both fights. His fight against Hernandez. I mean, I had him losing going into the 12th round, and he came and knocked him out. And in this fight, I had it dead even, and then he came, won the 11th round, and scored the knockdown in the 12th round. Now, I think top rank is the perfect promotion for Shaki Foster to be in because top rank has a lot of very good junior lightweights and lightweights once Foster moves up. So the future looks very bright for Shaki Foster. Hopefully he fights soon again. Um, Abraham Nova will probably fight on the June... uh, the the June uh, Puerto Rican uh, Festival Day before the parade, top rank card that they annually have. Um, don't be surprised if Shakur Stevenson fights on that card. And look, I had a great time at Madison Square Garden, the theater at the Hulu Theater, Madison Square Garden tonight. I was in the sixth row, right behind the uh, what you call you have ringside, which is only a few rows, and then you have the next section. I was in the 7th row behind ringside so I had beautiful view of the seats and ladies and gentlemen when you watch the fights live you get a different atmosphere than when you watch the fight on television you hear the punches you hear the body blows and it was a great atmosphere, they showed my face on the big screen twice (laughs) because I took a picture i took several pictures and posted it on um a uh, uh, twitter hashtag foster nova and so the people that that were running the uh the, the screen put my picture up twice during during the fight it was it, it was a great atmosphere there um and it was sold out i was afraid that it wasn't going to be sold out because a few days ago there were at least Uh, I believe a thousand tickets left, but no, those tickets went, went fast the last few days and we had a sellout tonight. So kudos to top rank for promoting a great card. This was an excellent, excellent card. Uh, Shushu Carrington is the real deal. Him and Abdullah Mason are the two best prospects in boxing and they're both top ranked fighters. So, uh, Bob Arum and I've criticized Bob Arum many a time on this podcast saying that he doesn't know how to promote black fighters and to this day he continues that tradition of dropping the bag with black fighters. He might be dropping the bag with Shakur Stevenson because Shakur Stevenson's got one fight left with Top Rank and he's talking about leaving. He's got two can't miss prospects in Shushu Carrington and Abdullah Mason. Please do not drop the bag, these two young fighters are generational talents and I am so hoping that they reach their full potential these guys are must see TV and if they fight anywhere near where you live go buy a ticket and go watch them, I'm hoping both Abdullah and Bruce Carrington show up on the June theater at master's quick garden card and i'll definitely be there with bells on okay ladies and gentlemen now on to the q a session now on to the ask rob Silver question and answer segment of the podcast if anybody wants their ask their questions answered on the podcast go to twitter and type in hashtag ask rob silva and then ask me any question. It doesn't just have to be about boxing. It could be about life experiences. It could be about baseball, football, movies. I got a movie question here. Um, I got a wrestling question here. I'm going to answer this first because uh, I've been holding off on this question for a while because I wanted some time. So let me go to my buddy Half Pines question that he gave me uh, several several weeks ago. His question was: We've discussed how Uncle Dave isn't reputable. You want to go into detail? Keep it under one hour. Dave Meltzer is completely biased towards Tony Khan and AEW. I know people are going to say, "Oh, but he he uh he, he criticizes AEW on his on his uh podcast and uh, in his newsletter." Er, fuck that. People have to pay to see that. Go to his Twitter account, and every day he is fighting people defending Tony Khan. Every fucking day, I want to know, Dave, who's fucking you? Are you fucking Tony Khan, or is Tony Khan fucking you? Who's pitching and who's receiving? Because every fucking day he he defends Tony Khan. Tony Khan went on a on, on, on a uh, financial call a few months ago and he talked about how cage match this website that that only hardcore wrestling fans watch oh cage match gives my program and the, the wrestling matches huge ratings uh, according to cage match motherfuckers at warner brothers discovery don't want to hear that bullshit can you imagine triple h or before him the Cretan vince mcmahon bringing up some bullshit like that when they were trying to get a deal with Netflix. Nobody gives a fuck about that. Dave has been defending Tony Khan for years. Three years ago, people were criticizing Tony Khan for the way he runs. Him and his father run the Jacksonville Jaguars. They are fuck every year. They They made the playoffs one time since the Khans took over the, 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 the uh, team. Dave Meltzer writes, oh, but they make a lot of money. He must be doing something right. Dave, you a stupid fucking fool. You're a stupid fucking idiot. Owning an NFL team is a cash cow, all right? All the NFL teams make money because every game is sold out and they have a billion dollar a deal with ABC, ESPN, which is Disney. Uh, What you call it? CBS, NBC, Fox, and now Prime, uh, Amazon Prime. There's money. You, you, The Washington Commanders, Daniel Snyder, one of the worst owners in the history of professional sports, was leading the league in years for revenue while the, while the Commanders, before they were known as the Redskins, were stinking up the joint. What kind of fucking defense is that, Dave? Maybe if you would have defended your wife the way you defended Tony Khan, you'd still be married, you stupid motherfucker. Unfucking believable the way he defends Tony Khan day in and day out. Now, I bookmark some shit. Alright? I bookmark some shit. So let me go to my bookmarks, alright? I bookmark some shit because this motherfucker is off the fucking charts. He's the fucking worst. He defends this dude like this like they're making love to each other each and every night. Where are my bookmarks? Where are my fucking bookmarks? View all bookmarks. Here we go. Oh, here's a, here's another ridiculous statement. According to a Forbes article out today, the Kahn's family sports enterprises are worth $8.25 billion, a 39% gain over the last year, A sizable percentage of that game came from the gain in value of AEW. The family has the 11th most value of any family in the sports business. It's got nothing to do with fucking AEW, Dave. They own a soccer team in England, and they own the Jacksonville Jaguars. AEW has lost money every year since they came into the promotion. And Dave keeps talking about how... uh, they're worth over a billion dollars in itself. Nobody's going to buy that promotion for a billion dollars. What the fuck are you talking about? Half pint. I'm, I'm about to have a heart attack because this dude defends Tony Khan like, like I would defend my lady if a dude came and tried to say she was nasty. Tony Khan is a fucking loser. Dave Meltzer defends this dude over and over again. No. It has nothing to do with AEW they're worth billions because of the teams they own in soccer and the NFL Get the fuck out of here Let me look at my other bookmark here's another <laughs> Here's a question somebody said to Dave. Hi, Dave. I know John Cena doesn't need the, the money. He's loaded and has way more than Hogan when he left WWF. Do you think the cons could persuade him with huge money and the opportunity to work with guys he's never been in there before? Or is that enough? Or is that not enough? Could it be? Dave Meltzer says, of course they could. Dave, you know John Cena as well as anybody. John Cena is one of the most loyal people in the history of professional wrestling. The cons can offer him 10 million dollars a year. He is not leaving the WWE. He's an ambassador for the WWE. He's made a ton of money. He his movie career is because of what he's done in the WWE. He's not turning his back on the WWE. He's like The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. They're not going anywhere. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, unfucking believable. This could be the rant of a lifetime. Let's continue with this bullshit. Here's another one. UFC signed a female MMA uh, star named Kayla Harrison. Kayla Harrison. Someone uh, uh, posted this to ask Dave this question. Someone explained this in pro wrestling terms. Uh, UFC signing, signing Kayla Harrison Dave writes In pro wrestling terms It's WWE signing Jamie Hader Or AEW signing Becky Lynch Jamie Hayter Is only known by AEW fans Fucking W he, She walked into the WWE Today Motherfuckers be like Who's that white chick Who the fuck is her She ain't a Becky Lynch's level as a star Come on stop the bullshit All right, I'm tired of looking at this This is going to be maybe a weekly segment of Half Pint. I need to stop this. I'm just going to say one last thing. Dave said that because Cody became such a huge star in AEW, that's why he's one of the top two or three stars in the WWE today. Dave, you don't remember that... Before Cody left AEW, that the fans in AEW were shitting on him and booing him and Brandy, his wife, every time they stepped in the ring. You were criticizing Cody. Let me let me stop. All right, enough of that question. Let's go on to the next set of questions here on the Ask Robson portion of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, half half pint, half pint. You've got another question. You 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 ask. I'm on on Fight Club. I'm gonna answer that next week. Cause uh uh I I went I went long on this one I'll answer that next week uh Jay Corpus great long time member of the f- boxing community writer uh, a boxing administrator the whole nine he writes he he sent me a video on Twitter about Harlem and the video was 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 posted Harlem New York 1989 and he asked me if this was P.S. 186, yes, P.S. 186 on 146th Street and Broadway. And ladies and gentlemen, people were responding to this video that uh, a Twitter handle by the name of Historic Videos brought up, and they were criticizing Harlem for the way it looked back in 1989. Um, You must not understand that in 1989... Damn near all of urban New York City looked like this because we were in the midst of the crack epidemic, all right? The South Bronx, where I grew up, in the Millbrook Projects. Harlem, all Harlem, Spanish Harlem, and West Harlem, right? Bedford-Stuyvesant, Williamsburg, Red Hook, Jamaica, South Jamaica, Queens, Jamaica, Queens, Queensbridge, Long Island City, I could go on, Brownsville, Red Hook, all these, um, uh, Brownsville, East New York, all these communities were devastated by the crack epidemic, an epidemic that was started by the Reagan and Bush administration when they flooded New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, the urban areas with crack and heavy artillery, a.k.a. AK 47's the whole nine. Now I can go on forever in a day. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to hear more about my thoughts about the history of crack and the way it was flooded into the United States, you could check out my Legends of Sports and Music. I have several episodes in which I talked about the crack epidemic. I would go and check out my my podcast on Nas and Tupac. I totally Broke it down. Legends of Sports and Music. You could check it out now. Thank you, Corpus. Yes, that is PS186. And today, that neighborhood looks a whole lot different than it did 35 years ago. Because of gentrification, A. And B, because people were tired of dealing with crack addicts and crack dealers. All right. My man LL School K posted something that Tia uh Lopez uh, stated. Let me see if I can play this video. I'll put it to the microphone. We gave him a shit ton of money and we still haven't seen that back, Eddie Hearn. Yeah. And what they did, they cut. He said, "I have to cut fighters now." Yeah. And and it's like, yeah, you have to cut fighters because your ass don't know how to promote. Actually. You ain't a good promoter. We lost our twin towers. We did. We lost Showtime and HBO. We lost our twin towers. Yeah. Boxing is mm-hmm. boxing's on its way out. The Zone boxing. <laughs> It was a clip, I don't know if it came out clear on on, on the uh, microphone that because I, I put it in front of the microphone. It might've come out uh, staticky, I don't know. But Teofimo Lopez was interviewed recently by Pauli You Ma- Yeah, two pieces of shit. Pauli Malinagi, and Teofimo Lopez are two of the worst people in boxing, all right? But Teo made some good points in that short clip I played. Yes, we did lose the Twin Towers of boxing HBO Showtime and i wouldn't be surprised if taylor was right about the zone boxing the zone has lost millions i mean millions is going into business what 2017 seven years in seven years they've lost millions of dollars overpaying for fighters what's going to keep the zone afloat right now is the saudis getting involved in the sport and paying a lot of money for for fights between better b Well, Bevo- better being involved going to be on top rank uh, the zone also puts on pay-per-views, just like PBC did, that nobody wants to fucking see. The Zone gave Eddie Hearn a huge deal, and they gave Anthony Joshua and Canelo a lot of money. There's no way in the world they made a profit. They charge people $20 a month for their app. Nobody charges $20 a month for an app. And they've never revealed the description um, how many subscribers they have, because they are a Privately owned company. I don't see how much longer. The zone could continue in boxing. Um, Their product is horrible. They've put on great fights. But at what cost? Maybe they should go ahead. And listen to me. And have fights like I just saw. With Jojo Diaz versus Jesus Ricky Perez. Cut the entire broadcasting uh, crew. You don't need broadcasters. If you have clowns like Chris Maddox, uh, Todd Grisham, and Sergio Moron, you don't need them because they are just, uh, oh, my God. Uh, they are killing us with their hideous commentary. Thank you, L. School K, for that clip. And while I can't stand Teofima Lopez, that bastard use of the N-word over and over again, he made, I can't argue what he just said. About the zone boxing. About losing the twin towers of boxing. And how boxing is a dying sport. Boxing. If they're not careful. Will be relegated. To high school gymnasiums. Where the fights are. Because right now. Boxing only has ESPN. I hope Al Heyman can get another network on board. Because that Amazon pay-per-view shit ain't working baby. It ain't going to work. They need a real network somebody's got to step up uh somebody in al Heyman's pbc team has got to get them on network tv top ranks the only one left on espn and when that deal is over who's to say they are still going to be on espn we will see thanks again ll for a great question all right let me see what other questions i have here on the uh let me see uh That might be all the questions we have here. All right. All right. Oh, okay. One last question from Jesus Salas. On my Legends of Sports and Music podcast, I did a documentary review on the great Netflix documentary, The Greatest Night in Pop. Jesus asked, after listening to my podcast on The Greatest Night in Pop and after watching the documentary on Netflix, who was some of the artists snubbed for this project, the USA for Africa, We Are the World? Um, if you, I don't know if they were snubbed; they weren't invited. One, the one of the biggest names not invited was Madonna. Madonna wasn't invited at that time, and in and in 1985, Madonna was on the precipice of becoming a huge star. She uh, gave out an award; she presented an award that, that that night because. The night that they recorded We Are the World was right after the American Music Awards. Um, Madonna and Cyndi Lauper were the two biggest white female uh, pop acts going into 1985. Um, Cyndi Lauper, at this point in time, was a a, a tad above Madonna, but eventually Madonna would blow right by her. Um, Madonna might be the biggest one. Um, I'm trying to think as far as America Because this is USA for Africa So they were sticking to American acts Madonna is definitely one Prince was supposed to show up But he declined and he told them no. And So Huey Lewis took his place As the documentary showed What other acts What other American acts were uh, us I'm doing this off the top of my head ladies and gentlemen Can't include Billy Ocean he's British We're talking American acts American acts uh, can't can't include Phil Collins he's British and Phil Collins was part of the Band-Aid uh uh project that occurred just a few months prior what American acts could have been sn snub- cooling the gang James Taylor James Taylor was in Band-Aid J- JT the lead singer of cooling the gang that's one that's one J- JT Taylor from cooling the gang Madonna I mean, who else? I mean, they had damn had damn near every heavyweight there. Who's the top of the world? My top five male artists of, of, of the nineteen eighties was Michael Prince, Prince, the Kline and Shaw. Michael wrote the song and did the hook and did a verse. Uh, Phil Collins is my number three. He's British. My number four is Lionel Richie. He co-wrote the song and sang in Bruce Springsteen's my number five. He sang the song. My number six, George Michael, he's British. He's part of the Band-Aid group. Culture Club, part of the band. They're British. So let's just stick to Madonna and James J.T. Taylor of Cooler Gang as the two artists, the two biggest artists snubbed back in 1985. And now on to one final question. This question is going to lead us into my sixteenth greatest fight in boxing history. My buddy Kobe asked, What are some of the best matchups in your opinion between punches based on KO percentage? I dug into Wilfredo Gomez and seen that he took on serious punches like Lupe Pintor, Carlos Rate, Salvador Sanchez, and Azuma Nelson while being a puncher himself. Interesting to hear your take as a historian. You have A couple involving Carlos Zarate. When Carlos Zarate fought Alfonso Zamora, these were two guys that I think between the two of them, only one fight went to the decision. They were both undefeated, damn near knocking out everybody. Carlos Zarate versus Alfonso Zamora. What I was upset about that fight was Zamora was a WBA Bannerweight champion. Zarate was WBC Bannerweight champion. But the fight was a non-title fight. It made no fucking sense to me. Great fight. Uh, go check it out on YouTube. You had a fan come in the ring, the fight was held in Mexico, and Mexicali police came in there and they beat that man down. <laughs> uh, Wilfredo Gomez against Carlos Serrate, two men that combined at Damn near knocked everybody out. Both men were undefeated at the time. Wilfredo Gomez knocked out Carlos Arrate and then Wilfredo Gomez versus Lupe Pintor and we will get right into this my 16th greatest fight in boxing history. Let me pick up the article. Great question Kobe because it's the perfect segue to December 3rd, 1982 at the Superdome in New Orleans, Louisiana, where Wilfredo Gomez defending his WBC Super Bantamweight championship against the WBC bantamweight Champion, Lupe Pintor. After losing to Salvador Sanchez in his quest to win a 126-pound title, Referno Gomez went back down 122 pounds to continue defending a world title that he had held since 1977. Once, he, once again, he continued the Puerto Rican-Mexican rivalry by defending his WBC Super bantamweight title against the reigning WBC bantamweight Champion, Lupe Pintor. The 27-year-old Pitor had held his 118-pound championship for over three years and was attempting to win his second world title. In doing so, he would have to beat the 26-year-old Gomez, the greatest 122-pound fighter of all time, and also, in my opinion, the greatest Puerto Rican fighter of all time. Gomez, like fellow countrymen Carlos Ortiz and Miguel Cotto, was a boxer-puncher. He would adjust his style to to whatever his opponent's style was. Because Salvador Sanchez was a boxer, Gomez became an aggressive fighter who tried to cut off the ring and engage Sanchez in exchanges. Since Pintor Pintor was your traditional Mexican brawler, Gomez would attempt to box from the outside and give Pintor angles. Gomez boxed brilliantly for the first two rounds, landing his jab and great right cross several times. Gomez had one of the greatest right crosses in boxing history. That right hand would hurt Pintor early in the third round. For the entire first half of the round, Gomez pummeled Pintor against the ropes, landing several punishing blows. Dead. Midway through the round, Pintor hurt Gomez with a left hook, and the rest of the round saw both fighters in one heated exchange after another. Gomez went, to, went back to boxing from the outside the following two rounds. He controlled the action with his jab, although Pintor was able to land a few right hand, hard right hands of his own. Round six saw Pintor lure Gomez into a brawl, which resulted in Pintor stunning Gomez several times to both the head and body. Late in the round, referee Arthur McCanti penalized Gomez a point for blatantly hitting Pintor with an elbow. Round 7 and 8 saw Gomez go back to boxing and once again control the action in the center of the ring. However, both of his eyes were very swollen. Early in the ninth round, referee McCanty deducted a point from Pintor for a blow-blow. Then, both fighters engaged in a phone booth war that was completely dominated by Gomez. The the slugfest continued on in the 10th round, with Gomez outpunching Pintor 2-1. Pintor's left eye was all but completely shut. Then, in the 11th round, it was all Gomez as he landed one devastating combination after another, hurting Pintor several times. The 12th round was an exercise in organized brutality. Gomez jumped on Pintor at the very beginning of the round and hurt him with a sharp combination. He then gave Pintor a brutal beating against the ropes for the next two minutes. Then, Pintor hurt Gomez with a late rally and had Gomez up against the ropes when the round ended. At this point, both men were completely exhausted, were completely exhausted, and their faces both looked like it had been hit by a subway train. Gomez wisely went back to boxing from the outside in round 13. This helped him get his bearings, and had an already ex- exhausted Pintor even more fatigued by having to chase Gomez around the ring. In the 14th round, Gomez once again continued boxing and was landing at will. Finally, Gomez knocked down Pintor with a vicious left hook to the body. After getting up at the count of eight, Pintor was trapped in the ropes and Gomez finished him off with two left hooks. Gomez had, war- had won a war of attrition. Three years later, Pintor would finally win the WBC 122 122- title but only held it for five months before losing it and retiring from boxing at the age of 30 inexplicably pintor made a comeback eight years later Woefully washed up at the age of 38 pintor lost five of his seven comeback fights before finally returned retiring for good at the age of 40 since his retirement pintor has operated a boxing school in mexico city one of the greatest warriors to ever come out of mexico After successfully defending his 122-pound title for a record 17th time against Pator, Gomez relinquished the title and moved up to 126 pounds. On March 31st, 1984, he defeated fellow countryman Juan Laporte to win the WBC featherweight title. He only held it for a little bit over seven months, as he would lose it in his hometown to Ghana legend Azuma Nelson by 11th round knockout. Six months later, Gomez moved up to 130 pounds and won the WBA World Junior Lightweight title once again in his hometown by a horrible, controversial decision over reigning champion Rocky Lockridge. Gomez was a shell of his former self against Lockridge and would lose his title in his very first defense, getting knocked out by the journeyman Alfredo Lane. After knocking out two stiffs, Gomez finally retired for good in 1989. At the age of 33. Ladies and gentlemen. We have some fights next week. That we will be looking at. Here on the Hitman Chronicles. I'm looking at the fight uh, schedule right now. Saturday morning. Early Saturday morning. You have a triple header from Japan. That I will uh, talk about. We have a. uh, Let me give you the, the rundown of the card. Next Saturday we have. Takuma Inoue versus Joan Ancajas for the WBA bantamweight title. Alexandro Santiago versus Juntu Nakatani for the WBC bantamweight title. And Nakatani is my 10th best fighter in the world right now. And you have Kosea Tanaka versus Christian Rangel for the WBO Junior bantamweight title. So we'll be looking at that. And, um,. Edgar Edgar Belanga fights another bum next week as well. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, I'm only going to make one prediction. I've got Jutu Nakatani knocking out Santiago, who's a very tough fighter, in the 10th round to win another world title. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's next week's recap show. We'll have another greatest fight in boxing history, and we will answer more questions from the Ask Rob Silva for, for the Ask Civil portion of the podcast. Later on in the week, in the middle of the week, Tuesday or Wednesday, I'll be back with my uh, part seven of the Life and Times of Thomas Hearns. And we'll be taking a look at his fall 1987 fight versus one Domingo Roldan as Thomas Hearns attempts to become the first man in boxing history to win four titles in four-way classes. Until we talk Thomas Hearns in a few days, I want everybody out there to continue to be blessed and be a blessing.